0: And as we continue on in our series of this confession, we now get into chapter 11, which deals with justification. A lot of us here are familiar with the word justification, it's common, but maybe for some of you the word isn't as clear, and especially as it relates to religion and uh, church doctrine. So today I'm going to talk about it, and I'm going to take us back to simple definitions. What is justification? I'll begin by stating that the word justification is a legal term. It is a term that can be used in a civil court. To be justified is to be declared or to declare to be in the right. For example, if you were tried in a court for murder, you may have justification for your actions if the details of the events that you were involved in show to be merely self-defense. To be justified in that case is to be pronounced in the right. Now with that said, I think it's important that we keep in mind that justification does not actually deal with the process of making yourself right. But rather, it's about the pronouncement of whether or not you are righteous. In other words, it is a judicial verdict, a declaration of status. And this brings me to another important point. Justification is at the heart Of the age old question of what must man do to be right before Almighty God? This is the central question of all religion. This is the question of all questions. And at the end of your life, this is the only question that really matters. How can man be right in the sight of God? Now, if you're thinking that's an easy answer, just be a good person. Let your good deeds outweigh the bad. Just be sincere. If this is your answer, you either have a low view of how holy God is or you have a really low view of how sinful you actually are deep down in your heart and deep down in your mind. And it's It's possible that your pride blinds you from this level of true self-examination because the reality is that God is not interested in our fallen version of justice. He, as creator, is most just and most righteous. And you're fooling yourself if you think that God will let the guilty slide, even for the so-called small sins. As it says in Exodus 4.37, speaking of God, it says, He will by no means clear the guilty. And this is your status. Now, if you're humble enough, you would recognize and admit that you have no hope before a holy God if you were to stand before him for judgment. This is the case for you unless God would pronounce a different verdict upon you, a different declaration of status upon you. Imagine that you get summoned before a judge. And as you stand in that courtroom with your head down and your stomach turning, because you recognize that you really are guilty of horrific crimes and horrific sins. And what awaits you is a life sentence. And at that moment of intense silence, the judge stands before the courtroom and pronounces you not guilty. That's a miracle. And this is the best news that uh, any guilty person could ever receive. Now I remember watching some videos on YouTube of uh, some serious criminals uh, in the courtroom. You can look them up. Just type, courtroom verdicts. (laughs) And in the video, or in some of the videos, are recordings of a judge in the courtroom before the people and before the person on trial, ready to pronounce the final verdict. And in that intense moment, the judge begins to speak and then pronounces that person guilty and sentences that person to years in prison. And in some videos, it's life in prison. It's an interesting thing when you look that up on YouTube. And it's, fun, it's interesting because at that moment when he pronounces that person guilty, the family who sat in the back bursts out crying in agony because they'll never see their son or their daughter again. Often even the person found guilty breaks down and begins to scream because he or she knows that their life is over at that very moment. I would imagine that the person who was found guilty was filled with so much regret in that moment. And it's interesting what you would do in the spur of the moment. You do a lot of things when you don't think about it. And some people do think about it, and they still do do things. And I would imagine that that person was filled with uh, regret. This would have been the worst news that anyone could ever receive. Some of those people that I saw in the video were 30, 30 years old, 29. You know, their whole life is over. Yet that person can't undo the past. And at that moment, their their life is is pretty much over. Now, what does it mean in Christian theology to be declared justified? We read about justification in Romans 8.30. Let me pull this up here. Can someone read that? Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Thank you. Last week, uh, Pastor Ron covered the chapter on effectual calling, which dealt with the beginning part of the chain of salvation, which we read in Romans 8.30. This calling that we read about in this verse refers to the gospel when it's preached, taking root in a person. Many, Many people may hear the gospel message, but only a few will believe it truly. This is God effectually calling you. Now in that chain, we also see that those whom God effectually calls, he also justifies. That's that word that, uh, that we, we're going to be talking about today. This concept of being justified is what we'll discuss, so let's begin by looking at paragraph one in the confession. Did everyone get a handout with the uh, confession on it? Okay. Can someone read uh, paragraph one for me? Thank you. So in the first sentence we read, those God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. So from this we know that in the first act, which is the calling, that will lead without fail to that second act, which is justification. In other words, if you've been called by God, if you heard the message of the gospel, you will be justified. It, it, It will bring you to that next step, that next act. It forms an unbroken chain. you also notice that the confession states that God freely justifies. And it speaks here of God's freedom or sovereignty to justify. This is what it means by free, that God does so without anyone making him do it. Not even your so-called good deeds would convince God to save you. God does so freely. Nothing about you, makes him want to justify you. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You are born in sin, as the scripture says. Nothing about you is appealing to God as far as uh, holiness and righteousness is concerned. God justifies you freely with no obligation. Just as in effectual calling, God sovereignly gives his grace, so also in justification. It is freely given by his sovereign action and nothing outside him made him do it. He didn't look at people and said, look at this, good kid right here. I think I'm going to justify him. In God's wisdom, he gave the gift of justification to those whom he desired to give it to. It wasn't or could not be earned by anyone. It was a gift. And we see this in Romans three, twenty-four, which says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, we see that grace is a gift and gifts by nature are not obligatory or contingent upon the person who's giving it or, or the person receiving it, but freely given by the giver. Now, things begin to get a little bit technical as you read on in the, uh, in the, in the paragraph. Uh, and it should make you question, what is the nature of this justification? How do we receive it? Is it through sacraments? Um, you know, we, we may understand the concept of it being a gift. Oftentimes we wonder, how do we get this gift? Where, where do I get it? The confession helps us understand the nature of justification by first telling us what justification is not. Right? It says here, it is not by infusing righteousness into them. In other words, we're not justified by having righteousness infused into us. This word infusing means the action of injecting some sort of principle or quality or idea either in the mind or in the heart or the soul. God is not injecting anything in you at the moment of justification. The Roman Catholic Church view of justification uh, is a little bit different. They view justification as a process whereby righteousness is actually infused in the person. The Roman Catholic Church's Catechism states this. I'm going to quote from it. It Says justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. End quote. It's interesting. If I were to pick up the Roman Catholic Catechism and read that, it sounds right. Almost, you know, we we know that we are justified. Uh, we're saved from our sins. We know that we are sanctified at some point in our salvation. Uh, We know that there is a renewal of the interior man. But the the distinction here is that they see all those things under the category of justification. That's not how we as Protestants view it. In fact, I don't think the Bible views it that way either. Uh, So we, we see a major difference between the Roman Catholic doctrine and the Protestant doctrine of justification. The Roman Catholic Church doctrine includes some level of sanctification in their understanding of justification. Protestants separate that. We see justification as merely a declaration from God. He's telling you what your status is. He's declaring you righteous. Sanctification is something else, right? Uh, It is a process which involves us uh, at some level of cooperation where we... uh, We attend the means of grace, we come to church, we grow through fellowship, we grow through the reading of scripture, we grow as the Holy Spirit uh, places us in different kinds of processes of sanctification where we mature. That's a sanctification, that's a separate category from what God does to save you, right? God declares you just by the work of somebody else, namely Jesus Christ. Our justification is not dependent on our sanctification, it's something separate. Justification for the Roman Catholic Church is not a legal pronouncement by God that we are righteous, but an actual implantation of righteousness into our nature which results in the actual practice of righteousness. It's almost as as if God is saying, okay, here, I'm going to inject righteousness in you, now go do your part. Go prove yourself to be righteous. Go do works. That's not... That's not how the Bible teaches it. Uh, David Dickinson, uh, he has a commentary on the Westminster Confession. And he uses the word in- inherent to refer to infusion. And I find it helpful. Um, he states that if inherent righteousness did justify us, then good works would justify us. But the scriptures teach that good works don't justify us. And this is why we, we separate ourselves from the, the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification, and and you see that clearly in Scripture, that it's not works that justify us. I see this in Galatians 2:16. Can someone read that? Thank you. This justification is not implanting a righteousness or a righteous nature into us, which then acts perfectly righteous afterward. If that were so, then the moment we acted righteous, or excuse me, the moment that we acted unrighteous, then we would become unjustified and have to be re-justified all over again. And so you see the problem there, that if, we're, if we've been Uh, sanctified and and, and justified at the same time the moment that we find ourselves sinning against God it's as if we lost our justification and that's not what the the scriptures teach Um, but for the sake of time let's let's move along Uh, the confession continues on by giving us a positive description about the nature of justification it goes on to say This, it says, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. So justification is the forgiveness of sins and accepting us as though we were actually righteous, even though we're actually not. This is to say that God doesn't infuse righteousness into us so that now we can go ahead and earn our way to heaven. Rather, God simply counts us as righteous By real forgiveness, God actually forgives your debt, your sin. This is commonly known as imputed righteousness. Now, many religions have been critical of our understanding of imputation or imputed righteousness. Another way of saying imputation is accounted for or counted. Um, if, If you have imputed righteousness, you have righteousness that is counted on your behalf. It's been given to you. You're counted as righteous. It doesn't actually mean that righteousness has been infused in you. And many religions have been critical of this doctrine because they see, that, they see this as stating that God just sweeps your sins under the rug. However, this isn't what the doctrine actually teaches. On the contrary, this forgiveness that we receive finds its ground in the pain, in the suffering, in the punishments that Jesus Christ bore on our behalf. So it's not that, Jesus, that God takes your sins and puts it on the rug, says, "Ah, eh, don't worry about it." If you, if you take that same analogy and put it in a courtroom setting, imagine a, a person who committed a capital crime, and the judge is like, "Eh, forget about it. Don't worry about it. You're free." That's unjust. And so, what we're teaching by with this doctrine of imputation is that God just doesn't sweep your sins under the rug or forgets about them uh, in such a way that he doesn't care about it. God is so serious about sin, he abhors it, that someone had to pay for it. And, and, And thanks be to God that it was Jesus Christ who took it on our behalf. This is to say that we're saved. We're saved from the hellish punishment from God because Jesus wasn't saved from the hellish punishment from God. We're saved from the hellish punishment from God because Jesus wasn't saved from the hellish punishment from God. In other words, we got away and Jesus ended up taking the rap for us. He took it all upon himself while having his righteousness counted for us. And We see that Scripture tells us that Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. What do we do with a perfect record like that? Why did he get punished if he was perfect? Well, he took it for us. What do we do with his righteousness? He gives it to us. This is a, a substitutionary atonement. Uh, a. A. Hodge, he has also a commentary on the Westminster. He states this justification is purely judicial. It's a purely judicial act of God as a judge, whereby he pardons all the sins of a believer and accounts, accepts, and treats him as a person righteous in the eye of the divine law. This does not involve the infusion of righteousness into their nature. In fact, it does not involve the change in their nature at all. It is strictly forensic or legal. So if justification is a fro- forensic declaration, declaration, excuse me, not a decoration, um, <laughs> a forensic declaration, bringing no change to your nature, at least in that moment of justification, then what, do, what does bring about a change in our nature? A desire to actually do righteous. Because we know that even though justification is only a pronouncement, why is it that Christians are different? Well, we're, we're different not merely because of justification. We're different because in the moment of justification, God also gives us other things. He gives us graces. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who does that change in us where we start loving the word of God, we start loving uh, other believers, we we like to join in with other believers, have fellowship with other believers. Um, There's this irresistible desire to continue to seek and search for God's face. And that's done by the Spirit. In our effectual call, the Spirit regenerates us and brings about a change in our nature from the old to the new. Generation creates that longing in us to obey and pursue God. Uh, John Murray, he states this, Regeneration is an act in us. Justification is a judgment of God with respect to us. Suffice it to say, in looking at salvation as a whole, God does not only justify a person, but he also causes them to progress in the practice of holiness and practical righteousness. But unlike the Roman Catholic doctrine, the work of God in us is distinct from uh, justification, In other words, there is a pronouncement from God and then there is the work of the Spirit as he matures us. It's two separate categories. In the Baptist Catechism, uh, there's a helpful distinction made between the act of God and a work from God. Uh, justification is an act of God. There's no participation from us. God comes in, he interrupts your life, he interrupts your soul, he changes his, he, he comes in and he he declares you righteous. Then God, and then there is uh, sanctification, which is a work of God, where God uses means in order for you to continue to grow and be sanctified. Now, what is the significant? Uh, what is the significance of this doctrine of imputed righteousness? Well, imagine salvation with no imputation, with not being counted righteous. What would that look like? it would look like this, right? At some point, you would receive justification. Your sins would be counted as forgiven. But then as your day goes on, you find out that you had impure thoughts in your, in your mind if you, as you analyze yourself. And by the end of the day, you've counted 10 to 15 to even 20 different ways that you've sinned against God. And you can't seem to have, you couldn't seem to have kept a clean record for more than an hour And at this point, you realize that you're no longer justified. However, being that we're actually justified on the basis of Christ's righteousness and not ours, we can't ever lose that status of justification since it it never depended on our righteousness to begin with, but on Christ's. And this is the beauty of imputation. And there's a lot of modern scholars, New Testament scholars, I can name a few, that reject this idea of imputation. And I'm talking about popular authors, popular-level uh, popular authors and scholars that reject this idea of imputation. They rather see the work of Christ, uh, what they call Christus Victor, which is, uh, there, is a, uh, there is victory in your union with Christ, in that mysterious union in Christ when you have faith, um, that you are, in a sense, uh, declared righteous in order for you to be be in covenant with this God, but in order for you to remain in covenant with God, it depends on you. It depends on how, how, how long you uh, abide, or, or how, how, yeah, how long you abide in Christ and how well um, you can keep yourselves under the means of grace and uh, how you, you remain in the covenant with, with God, with Christ. And this is popular level stuff. They reject this uh, doctrine of imputation. But what does the word of God have to say about us being accounted or counted as righteous? What does the Bible speak of or what does it say when it talks about uh, imputation? Does it affirm it? Are these new scholars right? Does it depend on us to remain? Let's look at uh, a few passages. Romans 4, 5 through 8 says, and to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Excuse me, counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. You see that language there of being counted as righteous or righteousness. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Again, that language that God is not counting your sin. And it's not being forgiven so that you come into the covenant and then it's up to you to remain in the covenant. That's not what the scriptures teach. Another passage, 1 Corinthians to 31 It says, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So again, we see those two key uh, points there in that passage. Christ Jesus, our righteousness. In other words, Christ Jesus is our righteousness. It's not a righteousness that we... um, develop on our own. First, uh, let's see, Romans five seventeen through 19. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so that the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So again, what I underlined there, the free gift of righteousness, nothing that we do, through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. Our salvation is based on what Jesus did, nothing that you've ever done or will ever do. For the sake of time, I'm going to move on. Uh, the confession goes from the nature of justification to the basis of justification. The basis for god 's accounting and acceptance of their persons as righteous as righteous is not for anything wrought in them or done by them that 's what it says in the confession and then put positively, it says, but for christ 's sake alone so contrary to the Roman Catholic Church who holds to a sort of a synergistic or cooperative system of faith and works the protestant view of justification is a one-way thing it's god's work and that's it it is strictly god's act on us we do not cooperate not even a little bit it is given to us through faith but only by the grace of god now to be fair uh, the roman catholic doctrine would also teach that it is all a work of god's grace It is God's work of grace in the person. Nonetheless, they would say that works are required along with faith. Yet our confession rejects even that kind of contribution to justification. God accepts us as righteous on account of Christ's righteousness alone. And again, not even a small part of our so-called righteousness contributes to that end. The reality is that we have no righteousness to add in the first place. And we see this in Romans 3.10, which says, no one is righteous, not even one. The confession continues uh, with a few denials, a few things that they, they reject. We see that it states that he does not impute faith itself, the act of believing, or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. Instead, he Im- imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in the death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. This faith is not self-generated. It is a gift. What does this mean? Uh, this is to say that even though faith, or believing, is the sole instrument by which we are justified, it's the tool that we receive our justification through, It's not faith that is imputed or deposited in our account, but rather Christ's righteousness. In other words, God does not count your faith as a righteous act that merits your salvation. It's merely a tool. Only Christ's work merits your salvation. No one is in heaven boasting about their belief, like, I'm glad that I was smart enough to believe. Look at all the dummies down there who didn't believe. That's not what anyone is doing in heaven right now. Nothing that we do is worthy. All we have is Christ's work. And this should also inform our attitude towards unbelievers. We should be gracious with them, being that our justification is on the basis of Christ's work and not ours. The paragraph ends by stating, this faith is not self-generated. It is the gift of God. And by this we have no place to boast or to approach them, unbelievers, as if we ha- what we have was accomplished by us. Right? When we have faith, it's not something that, uh, it's not something that Christ uh, imputes in us as a form of righteousness. Uh, it is merely a tool. Um, and so we, we ought to be humble before all people, even believers. When we're you know, fellowshipping in the body, there should be a level of humility, knowing that where you are spiritually, if you're a spiritually mature person, what you have has been given to you, and you, you did not gain it by yourself. I think Ephesians 2 says it best. Can someone read that? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9? Thank you. Amen. Moving on, let's look at paragraph 2. Can someone read uh, paragraph 2? A beautiful harmony. <laughs> Wonderful. It's the only instrument of justification. Yet it does not occur by itself in a person justified, but it is always accompanied by every other saving grace. It is not a death faith, but works through us. Thank you. So the Confession uh, develops the point that was previously mentioned about faith by stating that the nature of faith is its action of receiving it's an action of resting on Christ and his, his righteousness, resting on his work. Um, and that, that is what true saving faith is. Saving faith is resting and receiving the work of Christ. Now, you can tell that the Westminster Divines, those who formulated uh, the wording of, the, of this doctrine, put a lot of thought on how, how to word this, this thing. Um, Uh, You see action of faith, uh, you see the the resting, resting on Christ and his righteousness. Uh, It's it's important that they word it that way. This God-given faith receives and rests on what Jesus did and what he did alone. Faith is not a passive reception of Christ and his righteousness or a mere intellectual assent to the fact of what Christ did. Rather, it is an active receiving and resting upon him. In other words, and, and hear what I'm saying and hear it very carefully. No one is saved by believing in the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. No one is saved, be, and the reason why is because the doctrine didn't die on the cross for you, right? You're not saved by just knowing a doctrine. Now, it's essential to uh, experience uh, the saving work of, of 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 Christ, as the Holy Spirit effectually calls you and, and transforms your heart. It's important to uh, receive that purely and, and truly and honestly. Uh, and your salvation depends only on the work of Christ. But it is not just mere intellectual, you know, contemplation. It's not. A salvation that is received by making sure that you got it right in your mind, merely. If it doesn't transform your heart, then you don't have saving faith. Faith is resting on that work that Christ did on your behalf. We see this reflected in John's Gospel. Uh, John one 12 through 12-13. I'll read it. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. That's the key thing. Nor of the will of man, but of God. We see in this passage that those who receive, which is an action, and believe, another action, were adopted as God's children. Faith does not rest on itself. It's not faith for the sake of having faith. It's not, it's not even faith doing the justifying. Faith is not its own object. Rather, faith has an object. The object of faith is Christ, and it should not in any way rest upon anything but of, of him, his work, and his righteousness. Biblical faith is not just believing. The question is, believing in what? What are you believing in? And A lot of, a lot of uh, Christians out there, or, or people who call themselves Christians, they love the word faith. They, they, they write faith with that calligraphy art kind of thing on their walls to decorate their house and it makes it look beautiful. Faith, love, and hope. But it's, it's just words. It, it doesn't point to the substance of our faith. It's like saying just buy. Just buy what? What do you want me to buy? Um, there's an object that's required. You know, there's an object uh, to our faith and the object of our faith is Christ and his work. And, and I, I'm so surprised, I shouldn't be surprised, but it's so shocking to, to see people who have been Christians for years, and they can't tell me who Jesus is according to scripture. They can't tell me what he did. It's about everything else. But when we talk about Christ, the person of Christ, and the work of Christ, they can barely explain it. And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, you have to be an astute theologian. It's simple. Your hope is found in Christ and his work. You should know that as a Christian. What he did for you. Why you're a Christian. He paid for your sin. And he resurrected on the third. Those are important uh, key things. The confession then states this faith is the only instrument of justification. The only instrument of justification. So while faith is not the substance or basis of, for contributing merit towards justification. It is the instrument of justification. In other words, faith did not die on the cross for you, like I said. Jesus died on the cross for you. So, it's not enough to say just have faith. Faith is merely the pathway in which God applies the benefits of salvation to you. However, the, the word only is important here as well. This implies that this is the only way to receive the benefits of salvation, by faith alone. And the Reformers must have had that Roman Catholic doctrine in mind when they were formulating their confessions or their creeds. This word only uh, or alone played a key part in that Protestant distinction from the Roman Catholic Church and their view of salvation, being that the teaching of Rome rejected justification by faith alone. This is not to say that when a person is justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, that they're free to live as sinful as they want. Some people hate to preach the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. They stay away from the word faith alone, or the words, rather, because they think it's going to lead people to licentiousness. It's like, don't tell people that, it's, that you're saved by faith alone, because then they're going to start living like the devil We must trust that if someone is actually justified, if they heard the gospel of salvation by faith alone, we must trust that, that along with that the Spirit is going to sanctify them. We should have no doubt. We should preach faith alone, uh, justification by faith alone, with confidence, not worrying about uh, the work of God not, uh, or the, the preaching or the message of the gospel not doing what it was intended to do. We should trust that the gospel is perfect enough to uh, transform the heart of an unbeliever. And we also see in Scripture that those who actually receive the gospel and trust by faith alone with no contribution of works, that they also will be sanctified if they believe in the gospel the Spirit will sanctify them. We see this in 1 John three three, where it says, "And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself, as He is pure." If you really hope in Him, you will purify yourself. Ephesians two ten, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him that we should walk in them. So those whom God effectually calls and justifies. He'll make sure that you are in a, an ongoing process of sanctification. And that spirit that he puts in you will bring you to your knees, even on, on days when you try to rebel against God. God will make sure to preserve you. We also see in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been, you have been healed. So the Confession makes this point by stating, yet it does not occur by itself in the person justified, but it is always accompanied by every other saving grace. You see that in the paragraph there? It is not a dead faith, but works through love. So while it is faith alone that justifies, the scriptures teach that faith never comes alone. It will bring other graces with it. God does not only grace people with faith, if he gives them faith, he also gives them graces that come along with it. And notice that the confession calls them saving graces. This is referring to the fruit that bears in that person that has true saving faith. If you're saved, if you believe in the gospel, if you've honestly placed your life in in, in Christ, you believe that what Jesus Christ has done on the cross has applied to you, if you believe that by faith, you will receive saving graces. You will bear fruit. You will show that you, uh, that, that the Spirit lives in you and that you will walk according to his His law. A person who has been giving true saving faith will have the Holy Spirit living and guiding them. They will have a love for God and a love for others. They will love God's word they would even love God's law. And so it's safe to say that a true believer will produce good fruits, even though the works are not the basis of our justification. It's a sign. It's a sign of living faith. Uh, we see, y'all know uh, James 2, verse 17, where it says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That We, we, we see in Scripture that the faith that God gives us, the justification that God gives us, is, is a living faith uh, moving on for the sake of time let's look at paragraph three we might not get through the whole thing but um, let's just get through what we can get through can someone read paragraph three Thank you. The confession here says, by his obedience and death, Christ fully paid the debt of all those who are justified. He endured in their place the penalty they deserve. By the sacrifice of himself and his blood shed on the cross, he legitimately, really, and fully satisfied God's justice on their behalf. So Christ's obedience and death um, was, was said in paragraph one to be the whole and only righteousness on the justified. But here it's stated in terms of a full discharge of debt to those justified. And Paul speaks about this in Colossians 2.14 when he says, he says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So this passage is basically saying that God nailed the totality of your debt to the cross. A record of debt at least during the time of Paul, was a legal document in the New Testament time which officially declared one's legal financial obligation to pay a debt. Uh, it was it was like receiving a, a letter from the IRS or a letter from, I don't know, the federal government. Um, and Paul's readers, when they read that, canceling the record of debt, they would have identified with that. Uh, this is to say that if you are united by if you're, not, if, united by, if you're united by faith in Christ, or to Christ rather, your obligation of debt that you accumulated in sin was paid for in full by Christ's obedience to the law and penalty of it in his death. If you're saved, every sin that you've done in the past, the sins that you're, you're, you're committing maybe right now, I don't know, and the sins of your future, the things that you might commit in the next few minutes or even in the next few days. All of it, God foresaw, and Jesus Christ took it upon himself and paid it in full. You'll notice that it discharged the debt not for all, but only for those who are justified. In other words, if you're outside of the body of Christ, that debt still stands before you. It's still held against you. If you don't uh, believe in the gospel and trust that Jesus Christ paid for your sins, uh, you have to pay for your own. Until God's act of justification has occurred, the elect remain in debt for their sin. And this is to say that if you if God chose you before the foundation of the world, it's not until you come to faith, it's not until you, uh, repent and believe in the gospel that these benefits, uh, are then applied to you. Uh, I, I think of all the things that we experience by the grace of God, um, every day we enjoy delicious food, hopefully, uh, air conditioning, wonderful bed, you probably have a family that you love, um. The music that you listen to, beautiful music, art that you love to look at and behold. Um, you know, all the all the good things that you experience in this world, in the end, you will receive the, the bill. <coughs> you're going to receive the bill. It's not free. It's not free because you're a sinner. And everything that you do that doesn't acknowledge God is 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 sin against God. If you enjoy that food, and it's not food enjoyed to the glory of God. As you eat, you eat to your own destruction. As you go to that wonderful concert and enjoy the beautiful music, and you, and you see the beauty behind that music, you hear it, you love it, you applaud after that concert, and you say, wow, what a wonderful piece. And you walk away and you don't acknowledge that God is the author of that which is good and beautiful and true. You've enjoyed something to your own destruction. It's not free. You're a sinner. You've sinned against God. Your nature is corrupt, and everything that you do, apart from Christ, is going to be count against you. Now, if you're a Christian, you're wondering, "Whoa, I I don't always eat food to the glory of God." Well, praise God that you're in Christ and your sins are covered. But for those who are outside of the body of Christ, in the end, you will receive the bill for the debt that you're in. And uh, either Jesus Christ uh, pays for your sin or you pay for it on your own. Um, And even one sin uh, against the holy and righteous God uh, deserves eternal punishment. Uh, And just imagine all that we've accumulated. The scriptures say that the wrath of God um, is is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and and wickedness. And the Bible says that by nature you're counted among those people. And so I want to conclude with that by stating that in the end, when you uh, come to the time of judgment before God, uh, will you be... uh, counted guilty, or will you be counted justified? And if, it's, if you're depending or placing your trust on your own work, um, then you will be found guilty, and God is just for doing so. But if you put your trust in Christ, then God could declare you justified even now. And so meditate on that. And for the remainder of the uh, paragraphs, you can take that home just because we're out of time. Take that home, look through it, meditate on it, Um, and uh, study it um, as it talks and develops further what we talked about today. Uh, With that said, let me go ahead and pray and close this out. Our Father, we thank you that we've been justified, Lord. We thank you that in Christ our sins are forgiven. Your word says that no one is good, not even one, yet we know that There was one that was good and is good, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we thank you because he took our punishment so that he would be ours. And so we ask, Father, that we would live worthy of such good news. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.